0: the title of our sermon this morning is The End of the Law for Righteousness. The End of the Law for Righteousness. This is Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. So in Romans chapter 9 through 11, this section of text that now falls under our consideration, Paul is addressing a concern that has arisen in response to his preaching of the gospel. Okay, It's a concern that's been raised in response, if you will, to God's free And sovereign justification of a sinful and undeserving people on the basis of faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that concern is the faithfulness of God to his word. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the gospel does not negate or nullify God's covenant promises to Abraham. The gospel is the means through which God had determined in eternity to fulfill his promises to the patriarch, Abraham. The unbelief and apostasy of ethnic Israel is no indication whatsoever that God has somehow been unfaithful to his word. It is rather an indication that Israel herself has been unfaithful to God's word. In pursuing a principle of righteousness that pertains to the law, in seeking to establish a righteousness of their own through the works of the law, Israel has failed to submit herself to the righteousness that is from God through faith. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've stumbled over the Lord Jesus Christ. They have failed to attain the righteousness which they sought, They have failed to justify themselves on the basis of that hopeless and futile and desperate pursuit, and they will perish in the way. Those who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, where you've come from, whatever your background, those who have not placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will find that they're going to face the judgment of God for their own sins in the day of judgment. Israel if they do not turn in faith to Christ, will perish in the way. It leads the Apostle Paul to open chapter 10 in much the same way that he opened chapter 9. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And it leads us to Paul's conclusion then in chapter 10, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all those who believe in him. For all those who by the grace of God receive a gifted or accounted or a accredited or an imputed righteousness, those who by the grace of God receive the gift of righteousness through faith, even the righteousness of God's only begotten Son, the only righteousness that answers to the just demands of God's holy law is the perfect righteousness. That righteousness is the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the sending of his only begotten son, in the life, the death, the resurrection of his son, God has laid a tried and proven and true stone, a solid foundation in Zion, upon which those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ may build a firm and solid hope. It's a stone on which they can build the foundation of a life. on on which they can build a foundation of assurance, on which they can build their faith and hope. He will be to them a rock of refuge, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have no reason to fear the judgment. Those who have not put their faith and trust in him will find that they have God as their enemy. They'll find that God has put a stone of stumbling in their way, they'll find that he himself will judge them in that day. However, that stone who is himself a rock of refuge to some will be a stone of stumbling to many, a rock of offense to those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. In the words of the Lord from Matthew chapter 21, whoever falls on this stone will be broken and on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The unbelief, of sinners their rejection of the lord jesus christ will be their ruin in the words of isaiah from last week they have sought refuge in lies if you've not turned to put faith in jesus christ and you have sought your refuge in lies you've been deceived they've made a covenant with death they've made an agreement with the grave and they'll find that god himself works against them in justice so with all that in mind with that argument now building through the end of chapter 9 at the opening of chapter 10 Paul again expresses his love for his countrymen according to the flesh and he expresses his grief and sorrow now over their lost condition verse 1 brethren my heart's desire my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved again what this is communicating to us is that Paul believes that the condition of Israel is unbelief and apostasy Israel is unbelieving Israel is apostate so Paul's concern in this section of the letter wasn't merely to overcome a Jewish objection. Paul's concern is that his countrymen, according to the flesh, would be saved. They would be saved. Paul, As Paul writes these words, he's writing them with the same heart, the same love, with which he wished in chapter 9, verse 3, that he himself were accursed from Christ for the sake of his brethren. He's writing with that heart. Paul's not trying to win an argument Paul's trying to win their soul. Do you see? He wants his Jewish countrymen who are lost, his Jewish countrymen who are largely unbelieving, largely apostate, he wants to win their soul. He wants them to be saved. With all of the outward privileges that Israel had enjoyed, with all that they had been given, their sin had reached its high water mark in their rejection of God's promised Messiah, in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To them... God had committed the adoption, had committed the covenants, the service of the law, the law that many great and precious promises, all of which terminated upon the greatest and most precious of promises given by God, namely the provision of his own son and trusting in themselves that they were righteous rather than placing their faith in him, making him their refuge. The Jews have rejected the only one through whom the righteousness that they need is truly given. And if you think with me, brothers and sisters, in their condition, in your condition when you were lost, there's anyone here who's not turned from sin to faith in Jesus Christ, your current condition. All of life comes down to a matter of trust. All of your life at this very moment comes down to a matter of trust. And dependence, trust and dependence upon one or two, one of two people, you or the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes down to that. Either you're going to depend upon yourself, you're going to trust in yourself, in yourself. It's not, this is somehow going to all work out in the end, or you're going to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The Jews, stumbling over the stumbling stone, they made themselves enemies of the gospel they made themselves enemies of God. God works in sovereign freedom. We saw that in Romans chapter 9. God works in sovereign freedom to fashion vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, bestowing mercy upon whom he wills, judicially hardening whom he wills, and at the same time, the Jews, like all men, are entirely responsible for their sin and unbelief. And here Paul levels the charge at the feet of the Jews themselves. Now this begs the question, it begs the question, where do the Jews go wrong? Where do so many in our day go wrong? Where do the Jews of Paul's day, where do they go wrong? Now Paul begins, he begins to answer that question by acknowledging their zeal for God. But he notes in verse 2 that it is an ignorant zeal. It is an ignorant zeal. We're going to answer the question this morning from the beginning of our text, starting in verse 2. Read verse 2 with me. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Okay, the word zeal refers to an earnest devotion, a fervent devotion, an ardent passion, if you will. And it's a passion that results in enthusiastic exercise of one's will in pursuit of that passion. You have a passion. That passion results in an enthousi- enthusiastic exercise of your will in a pursuit of that passion. That's zeal. In verse two, Paul bears witness to their zeal. And frankly, no one would have had made a better witness to Jewish zeal than Paul himself. Paul himself was the chief example of Jewish zeal. And so the apostle Paul explains his zeal to us from chapter two. But even Paul, even Paul explains to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, that Paul's zeal was in ignorance, that Paul did what he did in ignorance and in unbelief. He had a zeal for God, but his zeal was not according to knowledge. There are many examples of this in the New Testament. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 that all of his confidence was essentially in the flesh. Paul says there, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Paul would have considered himself to be blameless. In Acts chapter 8, upon the death of Stephen, consider Paul's state of mind with respect to this. Paul knew better than anybody the state of Jewish zeal, as it were. In Acts chapter 8, upon the death of Stephen, whom Paul would later call the Lord's servant, Paul was wreaking havoc upon the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, compelling them to blaspheme, exceedingly enraged against them, consenting to their death, and casting his vote against them. That's the Apostle Paul before his conversion with Jewish zeal, as it were. Acts chapter 26, verse 5. According to the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, Paul lived as a Pharisee. Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 Advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries Paul said in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers Like the Jews of Paul's day Paul had an intense and fervent zeal and it was a zeal for God but like the Jews of Paul's day and like those religious formalists in our own day it was not according to knowledge In other words, Paul, like the Jews of his own day, was sincere and sincerely wrong. Paul bears them witness. He knew from personal experience the state of their heart, the state of their mind, the state of their conscience. They were sincere, and yet they were sincerely wrong. Let's think about this for a moment, okay? It's good to be zealous. It's good to be zealous. Christians, of all people, of all people, Christians should be the most zealous people. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says to Titus, our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us, gave himself for us for the purpose that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, what? Zealous for good works. Christ died To redeem to himself a people zealous for good works. Galatians chapter four, verse 18, Paul says, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. So zeal is good, brothers and sisters. It's good to be zealous. We should be zealous. Of all people, we should be the most zealous people. But Paul bears witness in our text that the Jews had a zeal. And not only did that have, did they have zeal, they had zeal for God. Those of other religions, false religions in the world. For example, in Islam, we do not serve the same God. Yahweh is not Allah, and Allah is not Yahweh. Do they have a zeal? Yes, they have a zeal. Do they have a zeal for God? No, they do not. They have a zeal for the doctrines of demons. They have a zeal for some demonic counterfeit, okay? There are many who say they worship God. They do not worship the God of the Bible. They're worshiping something else. Paul says of the Jews, they had a zeal, and they had a zeal for God. You can't get any better than that, right? Think with me about that. Have a zeal. And for your zeal to be directed at its proper object. They were devoted. They were committed. They were fervent. And they were fervent, Paul says, for God. And they were sincere, Paul would say. And yet they were sincerely wrong. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That was the Lord's rebuke on their zeal. So zealous for missions, they travel land and sea, and yet they did not know him. The problem did not lie in their sincerity. It did not lie in their devotion. It did not lie in their commitment. The problem lies in the fact that they did not know him. The problem lies in their knowledge or their lack of knowledge of him. John chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Zeal has its proper object, and zeal must inform be informed with knowledge. Dr. Murray said this, Zeal is a neutral quality and can be the greatest vice. It is that to which it is directed that determines its ethical or moral character. The criterion, therefore, is knowledge, knowledge of its object. You can have zeal for precisely the wrong things, right? The the important criterion is knowledge, knowledge of its object. The basis on which zeal, the basis on which zeal is to be found moral or just or The basis on which zeal is found to be immoral or unjust is knowledge. In other words, a zeal for fire can cook your food or a zeal for fire can burn your house down. (laughs) What's it going to be? The criteria for appropriate zeal is knowledge. Romans chapter 10 verse 2 then gives us the criteria by which this zeal is to be rightly judged. It is rightly to be judged according to knowledge. Paul charges the Jews here, as he had rightly charged himself before, he charges them with an ignorant zeal. Verse two, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have an ignorant zeal. Knowledge, first Corinthians chapter eight, verse one, knowledge may puff up. Knowledge, first Corinthians chapter 13, verse two, knowledge is useless without love. And false knowledge, unbiblical knowledge, may lead to an ignorant or an irrational zeal. We've seen it through church history, throughout church history, haven't we? Those that have zeal without knowledge, they persecute the people of God. The people of God persecuted throughout history by people who have a zeal for God without knowledge. We've seen it in the enemies of this church, an irrational and an unreasonable zeal. It is a zeal without knowledge. Knowledge may puff up. Or knowledge is useless without love. Or, or, Godward knowledge may be filled with God's wisdom. May fill our own understanding of Him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. Knowledge leads to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13. That knowledge of God pr- provides discernment. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. That knowledge gives spiritual understanding. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. That knowledge of God applied by His Spirit renews us after Christ's own image. Colossians chapter three, verse 10. That knowledge leads us in truth. First Timothy chapter two, verse four. That knowledge accords with godliness. Titus chapter one, verse one. Paul is saying in verse two that although the Jews may have possessed a knowledge of their religion, although they may have had the very oracles of God in their hands, and although they had been given many privileges, many blessings, many blessings given to them by which they may know the mind of God, the Jews lacked spiritual understanding. They lacked an understanding of God's will. They lacked an understanding of God's word. They lacked that understanding of God's word, which would have been able to make them wise for salvation. They lacked that knowledge. And it is through their ignorant zeal that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It wasn't for a lack of zeal that they stumbled. It wasn't for lack of devotion that they stumbled. It wasn't for a lack of commitment that they stumbled. It wasn't because of a lack of revelation that they stumbled. It wasn't because they were stupid. It wasn't because of a lack of revelation. They stumbled at the rock of offense. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling. And they persisted with diligence. They persisted. With zeal against all evidence to the contrary, they persisted in a pursuit of their own righteousness through the law. Paul says in verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Brothers, it's good to be zealous. We should be zealous. We must be a fervent, earnest, devoted, and zealous people. It's in part what Christ has redeemed us to be, Titus chapter 2. But we cannot pursue pursue zeal without knowledge. And we shouldn't pursue that knowledge without zeal. (laughs) We cannot presume to be zealous for God if that zeal does not also involve an increasing knowledge of him. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, all those achievements that he had attained in the flesh, with his confidence in the flesh, with that zeal, that ignorant zeal, all of those achievements that Paul had attained to, Paul said he counted them as dung. He counted it all as loss. And loss for what, Paul? Loss for the excellence of the what? Of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, to know Him. To know Him. Where does that knowledge come from? It comes from the gracious self revelation, that self revelation of God that we find in His Word. That revelation of God found in His Word, preeminently through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that revelation applied in our hearts and minds by the Spirit of God. That knowledge, brothers and sisters, not only informs your zeal, by the way, that knowledge of Him also fuels your zeal it also fuels your zeal. A growing knowledge of who he is, a growing knowledge of what he has done for you will fuel and fire your zeal for him. In other words, the light that we've been given produces heat. The light that you say that you've received, that light should produce heat if it's made its way from your head into your heart. If it's residing in your head, it's not going to produce the heat that it intends. Right. It needs to make its way from its, from your head down into your heart. And if that knowledge of him, if our understanding of him, if our understanding of who he is and what he's done makes its way from our head into our heart, it makes its way into our understanding. And then we apprehend it. We embrace it through faith in the heart. That is going to produce heat, the heat of zeal in the life of a Christian. It's because of the light that we've been given because of that light that we should be a zealous, fervent, earnest, committed, devoted, wholehearted, whole-souled, thoroughgoing, fired-up people. It's because of that light. Due to who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. Paul says, considering that he died for all, then he's considered that all have died, all of us have died in him. And in light of that revelation, Paul judges thus, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. We should no longer live for ourselves, but for him. That is a household commitment. That's household devotion. It's the only rational response to all that Jesus Christ has done, all that God has done for us through his sacrifice at the cross, through the perfect person, the perfect life of Jesus Christ. It's the only rational response. Romans chapter 12, we're going to get there soon. Romans chapter 12, Paul calls it our reasonable act of worship. Make yourself a living sacrifice. Bind yourself to the horns of the altar. Give up your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Give it up. Abandon yourself to him. Why? It is your reasonable act of worship, your reasonable act of service. When I have done all that I can do, I must say, I am at most an unprofitable servant. I've only done what is my duty to do. I've only done that which is reasonable to do, considering all that has been done for me. You see, we should be the most... I don't understand this argument against commitment, against devotion. The Lord Jesus Christ testifies of that. In his own example, he testifies of that. The notion of a sluggardly, lazy, easygoing, let go and let God, milk toast Christian (laughs) is entirely foreign to the pages of scripture. We're not to be lukewarm. We're not to be lukewarm as the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3 was lukewarm. The Lord Jesus Christ said, because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, lukewarm so-called Christians make Jesus sick. You remember that account from Revelation chapter 3? You had three cities of concern in the Lycus Valley, Herapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Laodicea had no lasting drinkable water supply of their own actually prolonged exposure to the mineral content of the water at Laodicea would have caused vomiting. So they had to bring water in. Cold water that came out of the mountains through Colossae or hot water out of the springs, the hot springs in Herapolis. But the difficulty was that by the time it reached Laodicea, because Laodicea was far from the source, by the time that water reached Laodicea, it was tepid. It was lukewarm, really good for nothing but to vomit out of your mouth. So what is Jesus Christ saying? Those that are far from their life, far from their breath, far from the one who is to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, who is our joy, who is our hope, The one far from the source of who is our life, that one is going to be lukewarm. What does it mean then as we draw near to the source? It means that we're going to be more and more zealous for him. We're going to be ice cold, cool and refreshing. or We're going to be on fire, hot for him. Make sense? Those in Laodicea were lukewarm. And Jesus said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Titus 2.14, Jesus died to purify for himself his own special people, Zealous for good works. We should be a zealous people. The fires of godly zeal may be cooled by cowardice. Think with me now. The fires of godly zeal may be quenched by comfort or quenched by leisure. Fires of godly zeal may be stamped out by sin. Zeal can turn cold against hard-hearted impenitence. A lack of zeal may indicate a divided devotion. Your love for Christ divided between Christ and the things of this world. Your heart and mind and energy and time weighed down by the the cares of this world. So a lack of zeal may indicate a divided devotion. A lack of zeal may indicate a sinful presumption. You presume upon the grace of God God for salvation, and then you neglect the means of grace that God has appointed for your growth and sanctification. So you neglect the means of grace. You expend little or no effort in the battle with sin. And so zeal may indicate, a lack of zeal may indicate a sinful presumption upon the grace of God. It may indicate that you're receiving the grace of God in vain. Or, or a lack of zeal may mean that you don't know Him well. Or it may mean that you don't know Him at all. The Lord says, strive, agonize to enter by the narrow gate. Be zealous, be zealous. Many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Be zealous. Jesus said to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter three, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is not an academic concern on the part of the Apostle Paul. It's not an academic concern for you and I. This is a critical concept in the Christian life. This is something important to the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, this is a matter of life and death. We're talking about the nature of your Christian life, the fruit that your faith produces, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The Lord says, be zealous. For all those causes of an ignorant zeal or an impotent zeal or an absent zeal Paul explains in our text the root of the problem concerning the Jews of his day and concerning many in our own day. Paul explains the root of the problem this way, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul acknowledges that his countrymen, his brethren, the Jews, he acknowledges that they are zealous. They are zealous to attain a righteous standing before God, As such, they are zealous in trying to serve God. They're zealous in their perceived obedience to the law of God. But Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And their ignorance is defined in this fact, that they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Their ignorance exemplified by this fact, that they stumbled at the stumbling stone, the stone of stumbling, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking To establish their own righteousness through works of the law, they did not submit themselves. They refused to submit themselves to that principle established by God as the means whereby they might attain a justifying righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Looking at one principle of righteousness attained through the law, they rejected another principle of righteousness. That principle of righteousness established by God, whereby someone may attain to a justifying righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Now think with me for a moment. The Jews knew that God was righteous. When Paul says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God, that does not mean that the Jews didn't know that God was righteous, or somehow they forgot it, right? They attested to his righteousness. They attested to his holiness. They attested to his justice. It was their understanding of God's righteousness that compelled careful attention to the law in themselves and in particularly other people, right? That's what uh, led to their legalism and their hypocrisy. They knew that God himself was holy, that God himself was righteous. The religion of Judaism in Paul's day was the bitter fruit of a growing trend towards works righteousness in many of the Jews. In many of the Jews, between Malachi and Matthew, there was this growing trend toward a works righteousness in the religion of Judaism. The Jews had been exiled in Babylon. If you remember from the Old Testament, the Jews had been exiled. And the Jews who returned from exile to Jerusalem emphasized the study and application of God's law. Why did they do that? Because they have been exiled. So they came back not wanting to sin against God in that way any longer, wanting to protect themselves from sinning against God in that way. And so they emphasized the law. They emphasized the study of the law. They emphasized the application of the law. And So what did they do? They began to build synagogues to teach the law. They built synagogues everywhere that Jews were found, everywhere that Jews lived, and they built those synagogues to teach the law. And what began, this is... Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah, right? What began as grateful obedience and genuine repentance decayed over years into a heartless formalism, a heartless ritualism, a thankless works righteousness religion, okay? What began good went sour, and many Jews became obsessive about keeping the law but entirely neglected its weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith, right? Faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God. And they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Lord often addresses those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They knew that God was perfectly righteous, that he was perfectly holy, perfectly just. They were not without that knowledge, but it was that knowledge That compelled their attempts at obedience, and yet they, in their attempts at obedience, they didn't respond to the law in the way that the law was instructing them to respond. In other words, the law was their tutor to point them to Christ. And rather than pointing them to Christ, or rather than turning to Christ in faith, rather than turning to God's promised Messiah in faith, the Jews turned within. And I can seek to establish my own righteousness, my own righteousness through works of the law. I can be holy. I can be righteous. They trusted in themselves. They knew that God was perfectly righteous. So what then is the righteousness of God to which Paul refers then in verse 3? To what righteousness from God were the Jews ignorant? In keeping the law, the Jews could not see how the law actually exposed their unrighteousness, how the law actually exposed their inability. They sought righteousness through the law. They were ignorant of the fact that the law only served to expose their unrighteousness. So believing themselves to be righteous, they were ignorant of their unrighteousness and therefore ignorant of their need. What they should have seen in the law was an exposing, if you will, of their own need for a righteousness that only God could provide. The law should have pointed them to their need, and therefore, ignorant of their need, attempting to, to look within, attempting to labor under the law to establish their own righteousness, they did not acknowledge their need. They did not acknowledge what the law was pointing them to, They did not understand or acknowledge their need of God to provide them with the justifying righteousness that would stand the test of his judgment. They needed a righteousness that would justify them on that day. They weren't going to get it themselves. They weren't going to get it through the law. They needed God to provide it to them. The righteousness that they needed is that righteousness that is now offered in the gospel. It was offered in the gospel then. It was that righteousness through which Paul says Abraham himself was justified. Abraham believed God, Romans chapter four, and it was credited to him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It is that righteousness from God that he offers to those who believe in his son. That's the righteousness of which the Jews were ignorant. That's the righteousness of which many in our own day are ignorant. That perfect righteousness, that divine righteousness, that righteousness from God, Romans three twenty one. that righteousness of God it is that which is revealed apart from the law, witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It is the righteousness of his only son, the only righteousness that God may, with which God may justify an undeserving sinner, the only righteousness that God may justly regard in the salvation of unrighteous sinners. It's the only righteousness whereby God himself remains just and the justifier of those who put faith in his Son. Even though that righteousness was witnessed by the law and the prophets, Paul is saying that righteousness was witnessed in the Old Testament. That righteousness was witnessed by the Old Testament Scripture. So those that say the Jews in the Old Testament saved under a different program, if you will, saved in a different way, those in the New Testament saved through faith in Jesus Christ, no. We're all saved through the same means, through faith in God's promised seed, faith in the promised Messiah, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who is saved and has right standing with God is saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And that witnessed by the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, though it was witnessed there for the Jews, though the Jews had every testimony necessary to a right understanding of God's method of justifying sinners, The Jews were nevertheless ignorant of it. And that's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. Paul here in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, is referring to a willful ignorance. They did not submit to that righteousness of God. Paul is referring to a willful ignorance. Murray said they did not apprehend that which was revealed. It's not that while God was revealing it, they shut their ears, right? They stopped their ears. Oh, I'm not listening. It's not how it worked. They heard. They had the evidence. They had the testimony. the, The prophets testified, right? They had the witness of the Old Testament scriptures and they were nevertheless ignorant to it willfully. They turned in pursuit of another principle and refused to submit themselves to that principle. They did not, Apprehend. They did not take to themselves that which God had revealed. People do that today all the time, don't they? It's the parable of the sower. God sows his word. Satan comes in, snatches the seed, and you go about your merry way, maybe even thinking that you have life. The sower sows the word, lands on shallow, fallow ground, springs up quickly, and then is Scorched by the sun. Scorched, withered by the cares of this world, persecutions. Right? It's that seed of the word that lands on fertile soil that grows and bears fruit. The Jews were ignorant of God's revelation, and it was a willful ignorance. It was revealed to them, and the Jews refused it. He walked among them doing signs and wonders, and they willfully refused him. At the end of that, all of that revelation, they attributed the work of the son of God to Satan. They had received all of the revelation that they were going to be given and they rejected it as the work of Satan. That's blaspheming, blaspheming the spirit. And instead, verse three, verse three, in opposition to God's righteousness and in a tragic, misplaced, ignorant zeal, they sought, the word meant they went about seeking. It shows their activity their work. They went about seeking to establish their own righteousness through the law, and they refused to submit themselves to that righteousness which comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jews refused to submit themselves to the gospel. And the prevailing truth that ultimately, ultimately explains the tragic, desperate condition of Israel The prevailing truth that ultimately explains the tragic and desperate condition of every sinner is this one. All men are hopelessly unrighteous in and of themselves. In and of themselves, all men are hopelessly unrighteous. What do you need? What's the issue? Righteousness. And you don't have it in and of yourself. It's not man's righteousness upon which salvation may be built. It's not man's righteousness upon which your hope and faith may be built. Man's righteousness is nothing more than shifting sand and your house will fall and great will be the fall of it. It is only God's righteousness. It's only God's righteousness that is the foundation upon which salvation may be built. G.T. Shedd put it this way, all legal endeavor then is hostility to evangelical requirement. There is no neutral ground. There is no in-between. You're either apprehending, living by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him alone for salvation, or in hostility you are refusing the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and living for yourself to your damnation. There is no middle ground. All legal endeavor. That which is not done in faith is sin. All legal endeavor then is hostility. It's not neutral. It is hostile to gospel requirement, to evangelical requirement. He who would work out a personal righteousness is he who would reject that righteousness which is revealed through Jesus Christ. That's why when we think of the lost or we witness the lost people, and someone says, I hate or I don't hate God, I'm not a hater of God, the Bible would say otherwise. You've not put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you're a hater of God. You're trusting yourself. You're thumbing your nose, as it were, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who died on Calvary to save sinners. All endeavor, aside from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all endeavor is evangelical, is hostility to evangelical requirement. And that is because, verse 4, Paul draws a conclusion now. Verse 4, it is because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ is the end. He is the telos. He is the termination. Think with me for a moment. Christ denotes or Christ represents a terminal point. He is the termination of that hopeless principle by which men attempt to attain a righteousness through the law. He is the termination of that futile effort. He is the termination of that hopeless endeavor. Christ is the end of that principle for righteousness. He is the end of all efforts aimed at self-justification. He is the end of all efforts at attaining to a righteousness through works of the law. In other words, Christ is not an end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is not the end of the law. The law is a just and true guide to the Christian living of God's people. The the law is a good guide, a just guide, a righteous guide. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is determination. He represents a terminal point in that principle, in that process. He is the end of all those efforts of fallen men to aim at a self-justification through works of the law. Now, immediately, immediately in verse 4, Paul then adds a qualification. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. Paul doesn't mean by this statement in verse 4 that people aren't going to continue to try. It's a futile effort. It's a hopeless effort. It's an ignorant effort, but it doesn't mean that unreasonable and irrational people are not going to continue to try to go down that path to achieve or attain for themselves a justifying righteousness. The example of the Jews in verse 3 prove that very point. They're still doing it. It does mean, however, that for. Everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and thus by the grace of God receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ through their faith alone, the only righteousness, by the way, that fully answers the demands of God's law, for those who trust in Christ, Christ is the termination, the end of all those futile efforts at self-justification by personal pursuit of obedience under the law of God. Christ is the end of any pursuit. He proves that pursuit to be futile. He proves that pursuit to be foolish. He is the end of any pursuit which seeks any other basis on which a verdict of just may be righteously rendered in the courtroom of heaven. Those who turn from sin to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking Him alone, and seeking in Him a righteousness It may only come from him. That one goes down to his house justified. So I ask you the question this morning. Young boy, young girl, listen to me. You older men, you older women, been around for a while, living life for a while. Listen to me. Where is all your faith and hope? Where have you placed your faith? Is it alone in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it something to do with you? It's really, at the end of the day, a fairly simple question. Who are you trusting? What are you trusting him for? You can do that now. And you can go down to your house justified. Turn from your sin. Stop trusting yourself. Stop living for yourself. Why are you continuing to live for yourself? It's a futile, hopeless path. Stop living for yourself. Turn from sin and trust Christ. Abandon your life to Him. Trust Him, and He is your righteousness. Paul does not mean by all of this, in particular, verse 4, Paul does not mean. That the law of God is fulfilled and therefore done away with. It's not what Paul means here. Paul does not mean that the moral law of God no longer applies to the believer as a rule of life. Paul does mean that the believer cannot use the law as a means by which he attains, sustains, maintains a righteous standing before God. Having attained to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it is a deadly trap for Christians to somehow believe that they can maintain right standing with God, sustain right standing with God through works of the law. That is a deadly, legal, legalistic trap. And it's a compelling error because we battle with our sin. According to Paul in his letter to the Galatian churches, it is a damning error. Having begun through faith, are you now going to turn to works of the law to sustain your justification? Or when you believe somehow because of sin that your justification is imperiled, are you going to turn back to the law to re-justify yourselves? That's the Roman heresy. It is a deadly trap. For the believer, the law is no longer a means through which he may attain to a justifying righteousness before God, and it is no longer a means through which he may maintain or sustain a justifying righteousness in the sight of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You're unable to be justified before God apart from that righteousness, which alone comes from him. Unable. That righteousness is a free gift of God's grace. It is given only through the means of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and he is our righteousness, start to finish. He is the tried and precious stone that has been laid in Zion as a firm foundation for your hope, the only foundation upon which your hope, the only foundation upon which your assurance May be built. So rest your hope for justification upon Him alone. He is our righteousness. If you don't, then you'll find that a great stone lies in your path. You'll find that there's a great rock that has been placed in your way, and those who fall upon it will be broken. Those upon whom it falls will be crushed to powder. But for those who place their faith in Him, they will find that great stone a sure foundation. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you. We worship you. We revel in all that you have done for sinners, undeserving sinners, by providing for our sins through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. We thank you that it is not one whit through anything to do with us, but through faith alone in Christ alone. Otherwise, we would certainly be doomed. We thank you that it is by faith, Romans chapter 4, so that it might be entirely according to grace, so that it might be entirely sure to all the seed. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge through faith, is a sure and steady foundation. He is a rock of refuge. And I pray that you protect us from stumbling over him, his work in the way, as it were, to... Those times in our own Christian lives even where we may seek to sustain or maintain a right standing with you through works of the law. Lord, convict us of that sin. Grow us, mature us past that ignorant effort and cause us, Lord, by your spirit to embrace Christ for who he is and all that he's done to embrace in faith that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus to embrace through faith all that you have done for us in him, to trust him alone for our salvation, knowing, knowing you are faithful. You will redeem to yourself that people which you have foreloved, predestined, called to yourself, justified. You will most certainly glorify them. Help us to embrace that fact through faith in him for your glory, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the good of our own souls. We pray it in his name. Amen.